Ryan is uh, finishing up his degree in theology at Calvary um, Church, Calvary Chapel Bible College. And he has been with us uh, for a while now. And he just wants to let you know a little context of Brian preaching this morning. He's had a rather busy uh, life recently. He, he closed on a house on Friday. He moved yesterday. He's preaching this morning. And I think your wife is delivering a baby this afternoon. Is that, is that the case, Lori? Probably right now. All right. So you got a little time before you're done. But good to have you. Bring the word, bro. Uh, I, me and my wife were just realizing that the last time I, uh, I preached at a church, we were actually moving across country to come here. We had to, we had to pack. In fact, we preached, and then right after we preached, I had to rush to go get the truck and to load up the stuff and leave. So this is becoming a pattern. I don't know. It's, it's strange. Um, so as you all would probably imagine, I'm a little nervous, so I'd really enjoy if you guys would all pray with me. Father, thank you so much, God, for just what you're doing in all of our lives, Lord. I I know that um, the things that Lori and I are going through are not uncommon, and I know a lot of people here could probably share and testify and laugh about a lot of the different things that you're doing in their lives as well, and that you have done. But this morning, God, I, I believe the message is really interestingly catered to that very thing, and Lord, a lot of us here this morning are in very dark situations. Um, some of us are hurting. Some of us really need just a word to remind us of why we've put our faith in you and why we've chosen to believe in you and why we need to really lay it on our lives, why we need to go all in for you. And so, God, I just pray that my nervousness would not get in the way of your word in any way, God. I pray for your spirit just to anoint me, and, and not only to anoint me, but anoint the church here, God, because... We want to hear from you, God. We've set aside this time in our busy lives to come and to hear from you. And we desperately need your word, and we desperately need to hear you speak to us this morning. So we trust in your faithfulness. We believe that you are going to speak to all of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. I don't think Jason did say that. Second Peter chapter 1. Last week, Trent took us through chapter 2. Um, awesome message. This week, we're actually going to go back to chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 21, because that's where Jason had left off a few weeks back. Before we get into our text this morning, though, let's first consider again why Peter is writing this letter, and also who he's writing it to. Um, Peter is approaching his death. Jesus had told Peter, when you're old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He was prophesying to Peter about his death that would soon take place, and that he would be crucified just like his Lord was. Um, Church tradition tells us that when Peter was actually crucified, he was asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was, which is pretty amazing. So we're reading a very precious letter in that these are Peter's final words of faith and hope, and remembrance, and it's set within the backdrop of his soon death by crucifixion. Peter was totally committed to the point of death for the glory of God, and he's desiring to stir up the same attitude within the hearts of the church. Now, the Christians that Peter is writing to, they were facing some extreme trials as well due to their faith in Jesus. Following Jesus during this time in history came with a very serious cost. They were excommunicated from society, 
They would lose their jobs, lose their homes. Oftentimes, they'd be divorced from their spouse, someone from their spouses. And all the while, they had this umbrella called Rome hunting them down. So they were going some, through some very difficult things. And the overwhelming satanic question would come to them, no doubt, over and over again. Did I make the right choice in following Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? I know I have. Um, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm sure you've asked that question. Um, if following Jesus means a life of hardship, of death to self, persecution, trial, why bother? Now, obviously, the, difficult, the, the difficulty we face as Christians today is nothing like what they faced back then. But instead of feeling guilty about that and making our problems seem like they're not so big, let's just admit the fact that it's difficult. It is, at times, to follow the Lord. It's difficult. In some ways, the culture we live in today actually presents difficulties and temptations that Christians in Peter's day didn't have to deal with. Perhaps you've tried to step out in faith in some way only to have a door shut in your face. Perhaps following Jesus has left you alienated in some way. Perhaps you're realizing the cost to follow him, that you must die to self. And you're trying to die to self, and you're wanting to die to self, and yet you're struggling even in that very command. And you feel like you're a failure, and you're just tired. Perhaps some of you are going through those kind of things this morning. I believe that this message this morning is, is all about that. Um, some of us this morning, if we were to be honest, would ask the question, is this really the abundant life? that Jesus was talking about, that Jesus promised. Peter is reminding these suffering Christians why they need to keep going, why they should have great hope. He wants to give them solid truth. He wants to give them logical reasons to choose to believe, to choose to go all in. Peter, too, had to make that choice. You remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching some very difficult things, and a lot of his disciples left him. And he turned to his 12 disciples and he said, are you guys going to go also? And Peter said something very classic. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter just made a very simple, logical statement. And sometimes our faith and our choice to, to follow Christ just comes down to that simple choice where we say, if I'm going to follow him, I'm going to go all in or not in at all. Because what's the point of going if you're not going to go, in, go all in? There's a poker term that most of us know, all in. It's when you have such a solid hand that you take all the chips that you have left and you push them right into the middle, everything. You lay it all down on the line. You make the choice to do this because you believe in the hand that you were dealt enough to place all of your hope in the likelihood of winning. Following Jesus can at times come down to simple logic. I want to flee or I want to disobey in this area, but I know too much about Jesus to deny him. Have you ever thought that? I have. I must hold on to him. To, to whom shall I go? None of us here have a perfect faith, but we're pushing our chips forward. We're laying it all down on the line. We're betting on Jesus, because in order to follow Jesus, you and I must go all in or not go in at all. Now let's go ahead and get into our passage. We're going to first read verses 10 through 21, in order to get the context, but we're going to actually focus on verses 16 through 21 this morning. So look at verse 10 here. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter is saying, go all in. Go all in. And then he gives them a reason. 4, verse 11. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying, go all in, because even though you will suffer now, you will reap later when? When Jesus comes back. Not now, later. Verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter's saying, I'm going to be crucified soon, so I want to remind you of these things again and again, over and over, why and how to follow Jesus. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now into our text this morning. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Holy Spirit. Peter's telling us in this passage why we should place our hope in Jesus, why we should lay down our lives, why we should go all in. He says, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The things that I'm seeking to remind you of in this letter, they aren't foolish and clever myths. We witnessed him with our own eyes. That's what he's saying. We witnessed him in his glory in the past, so we know that we're going to see him one day in the future. And more importantly, we have the word of God that tells us that he's coming again. So don't be fooled by false prophets who mock the fact that Jesus is coming again and who are trying to get you to live your life here and now and put your hope in things or rewards here and now. That's what Peter is saying here. To follow Jesus is a choice. It's a choice. And it greatly influences everything about who you are, how you live your life, your worldview. Jerry's been talking a lot about that in the class. Where you place your hope. Either Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again three days later, or let's face it, this is pointless what I'm doing right now. We're all just following cleverly devised myths. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. So are you all in? Peter gives us two logical reasons. We're going to put them on the screen here in this passage why we should go all in for Jesus. Number one, Peter witnessed the glorified Lord verses 16 through 18. Peter reminds us, again, that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' glory shining before him. Number two, the prophetic word, verses 19 through 21. Evidence that's even more reliable, even more sure than his own eyewitness testimony. Jesus fulfilled prophecy in the past. He will fulfill prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in the future. So let's first consider the event known as the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter's talking about here, where Peter witnessed the glorified Lord. Verse 16 at the end there. 
He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So again, Peter's referring to the event known as Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jason talked about that when we went through um, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. You remember that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on top of a mountain, and there he began to shine right before their very eyes. He began to reveal his glory to them. And then the Father also spoke to them from heaven, giving Jesus honor and glory by confirming him as Messiah to the disciples with the words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I like what David Gutzik said about this event up on the screen here. This shining glory was not a new miracle, but a pause in an ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus most of the time could keep from displaying his glory. I like that. Now, what was the purpose of this event? Why did Peter do this? Did he just decide, hey, I'm just going to go up on a mountain and just shine for him, you know, got nothing else to do today? Um, more importantly, why is Peter sharing this event to us in Second Peter? I think the context of this event actually tells us. In Matthew 16, prior to this event, Jesus had taught his disciples some difficult things, some very difficult things, things that really shattered them a bit. It stirred them up. He revealed himself as the Messiah at Peter's declaration of him. He told them that the Messiah must die on a cross and that he was going to rise again three days later. That's something that was very contrary to, to their understanding of what the Messiah was to do. Their understanding of what the Messiah was, would come and he would rule and reign. The idea of the Messiah dying, that was something, what are you talking about, right? In fact, Jesus or Peter rebuked him for that. But then he taught them, you too must die on a cross. He said, you have to die to self. You have to go all in. You have to take up a cross. And then, after that, he shines before them. So the Mount of, Trigger, Mount of Transfiguration, it served as evidence. It was a demonstration of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king and central figure. It provided Peter the logical motivation to carry out Jesus' commands to the point of death. Matthew 16, 24, this is what he said. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Then about a week later, he gives them a reason to do that. He gives them evidence. He shines before them. Peter needed evidence to follow Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. For Peter, the evidence given to him, among other things, was Jesus in his majesty. He's now bringing this event to the attention of his readers in 2 Peter because they too were faced with a command to go all in, to carry their crosses daily. Because Christianity is a life of faith, but it's faith based on solid evidence. It takes faith to go all in for Jesus, to die to self daily. But God has provided us with evidence that gives us every logical reason to do so. And a very humbling thing about this, when I, was, I was thinking about this as I, go through, as I was going through this, is that our lives, my life, your lives, they actually lie within the testimony of men who lived thousands of years ago. That's a really humbling thing when you think about it. Everything that we have geared our lives around, if we are truly gearing them around the gospel as we're supposed to, it's all centered in the testimony of guys that we've never met, that lived thousands of years ago. Now, this is not an apologetic message, 
But one thing is for certain. Peter really saw and heard these things. Well, how do you know that, Brian? Because many people are willing to die for somebody else's testimony that's not their own. For example, the the 9-11 terrorists. They flew their planes into these buildings. Why? Because they believed in the testimony of somebody else who told them that if you do this, you're actually going to be greeted in heaven with this great thing. So many people are willing to die for someone else's testimony, but nobody's willing to die for their own lie. Why would Peter lie and then live the rest of his life dying for it and be facing a cross for it? So Peter's testimony is very solid. He laid down his life for his, for his whole life for his own testimony. Why? Because he witnessed his glory. He witnessed his resurrection and his ascension, and thus he lived his life as though he truly was coming back again. I encourage you all to study the, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. It'll blow you away how solid their testimony is. But really the point I'm making in this message is that Peter saw things and he heard things. Those things caused him to lay down his whole life for Jesus. And he's here exhorting his readers and us to do the same. Jesus asks us to do difficult things as his followers. Again, it's difficult sometimes to follow the Lord, even as he asks difficult things of Peter. And perhaps you're struggling in your faith this morning. You've lost hope. God wants to remind us this morning through the apostle Peter. Peter would say to you, look to the Mount of Transfiguration. See him shining. Look to him. Hear the words of the Father from heaven, validating him, and thus confirming your choice to follow him. Be willing to take up your cross as Peter did. Remember what he's done in your life. Remember the evidence that he's given to you. Maybe he hasn't given us the evidence that he gave to Peter, but he's given us all evidence. He's made himself known to us. No one here can say that he hasn't. If you want to, if you wait to follow Jesus until you have total absolute proof, that he is who he says he is, you're going to be waiting a very long time. Christianity is about faith, but it's faith based on evidence. Draw your attention to this screen. For Peter, the Mount of Transfiguration served as evidence. God always will give you evidence. But based on the evidence God has given you in your life, will you choose to go all in for him? Well, Peter gives us another reason in verses 19 through 21 to go all in. He says this is a reason that is more fully confirmed even than his own eyewitness testimony. Now, these verses are rich with meaning. This is the prophetic word. Number two, Peter gives us the prophetic word. Let's look again together. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Something more certain, something more reliable, something more concrete, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells us here, The word of God is more fully confirmed. It's more steadfast. It's more certain, permanent, stable, firm. It's the same word actually used in verse 10. If you read where he says, we are to confirm our calling and election. Same word there. More sure than Peter's eyewitness testimony. More sure than my testimony. More sure than your testimony. 
More sure because it's not the word of man, it's the word of God. And it's objective. More sure because it's been tested, it's been tried, scrutinized. It's been picked apart. It's been proved objectively. Peter says here it's more sure because it's prophetic. It actually tells us about events before they happen. So Peter's point is this. You and I should go all in for Jesus because he is coming back again. Prophecy tells us so. Now, again, this is not an apologetic message, but no other book in history has been scrutinized and validated in the way the Bible has. It's been supported by archaeology. The Dead Sea Scrolls is a great place to go for that if you want to get a taste of that. No other book has the ancient manuscript support that the Bible has. It's been supported by history. The Bible details historical events with pinpoint accuracy before those events took place. The Bible tells us of the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and Roman empires before they came to power. The Bible contains a timeline in Daniel chapter 9, a very intricate, detailed timeline that tells us the exact day when Jesus made his triumphal entry. I won't even get into all the prophecy that Jesus himself fulfilled. But if Jesus has fulfilled all the prophecies regarding his first coming to the T, shouldn't we logically expect him to fulfill the prophecies concerning his second coming. That's what Peter is saying here. Again, that's Peter's point. There is truly no other book like the Bible. But aside from all that, you know, for me, even before I studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, before I learned the prophecies of Daniel, before I looked at the manuscript evidence, here is why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible has changed my life. It's changed my life. It's prophesied to me. It was, it was to me, and I'm sure it was to many of you, it was the missing link. I, I searched through a lot of different avenues before I became a Christian, and there were so many holes. But when I began to read the Bible, it began to prophesy to me. It began to speak to me. I, I realized this is not just an ordinary book. This is a book that is, as Hebrews 4.12 says, living and active. It's alive. It prophesies to us. That may, may mean nothing to some of you, but it means a lot to me. And the people who knew me before I became a Christian will testify to the fact that there's a big change that has been brought about in my life. Not perfection, but growth. Growth that I could never bring about on my own. If you read it for yourself with an open heart, it will change your life as well. Now, I know that in a congregation this size, there's perhaps some people here who haven't put their faith in Jesus. I want to speak to you for a moment. For those of you, you here that haven't put your faith in Jesus, could it be? Could it be that the Bible is the Word of God? If the Bible is the Word of God, what does that mean for your life? The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect and sinless life. The Bible teaches that you and I, we live flawed and sinful lives. We fall short of God's standard. We fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. The Bible teaches that we are facing the wrath of a holy God whom we have sinned against, and that because we've sinned against an eternal God, our punishment is eternal. It's punishment in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. If the Bible is the word of God, it's not, it, it can't lie. But the good news is this. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus, the Son of God, who lived the perfect life, died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. 
He rose again from the grave three days later, and his resurrection confirmed everything that he said, everything that he did, that it was true, that it was accurate, and that God accepted his sacrifice, everything that he rose three days later. Hard to believe, isn't it? The choice is yours. The Bible teaches that if you put your faith in Jesus, if you confess your sins to him, if you repent of your current path in life and follow him, proclaiming him as Lord, if you go all in for him, he will go all in for you. You will be saved from hell and will live for eternity in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? The Bible is the word of God. God cannot lie. He's perfect. There's massive evidence that supports that the Bible is the word of God. And I I would say, if you're undecided this morning, a lot of us are undecided. We're exploring Christianity, perhaps. I would suggest that whatever is going on in your life right now, whether it be school, whether it be work, big life things going on, I would say all of that, that's all secondary because of what I'm telling you right now. It's very, very secondary because you and I will exist for a very, very long time. And the choice you make today will determine your existence. Are you all in? Now, I love verses 19 to 21. Peter actually, this morning, gives us some great insight into the Word of God here. Peter tells us, first, how the Word came to us, and second, what the Word produces. First, let's consider how the Word came to us in verses 20 through 21, because Peter tells us to know this first of all, and so who am I to argue with him? How the word came to us, verse 20. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that Peter's speaking of the whole Bible here. I believe that for reasons that I don't have time to get into. But Peter's speaking of the 66 books that we know as the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament. That's what he has in sight here when he speaks this way. I want to give you a theological term here up on the screen, just to kind of, you know, not to just give you an idea of what we're talking about here. The word is theanthropic. The Bible is theanthropic. Theos, meaning that it's God-inspired. Anthropos, it's man-recorded. That's what Peter is saying here. And this is what we need to know, first of all, when considering the Scriptures. Peter says... No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Literally, it wasn't loosed. It wasn't released by the prophet. That's the word interpretation. That's what it means here. The prophet simply recorded the message that originated or was loosed by God. Then Peter says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word for carried along is a word that's also used to describe a boat that has its sails filled with by the wind and is being pushed along. That's the idea here. Men did not loose the scriptures. Men were filled with God's words, and they recorded them faithfully. They wrote, now they wrote with their own style of writing, didn't they? They had their own personality within it. If you read the scriptures, you'll see different personalities within the writers. So it's not as if God just kind of like took over and they had no choice within the matter. Um, It's it's really a miracle that, that happened. But the message is God's. How many of you here today know who Jay Carney is? Any of you know who Jay Carney is? I'm not surprised. I I didn't know who he was either. Um, Jay Carney is the press secretary for President Obama. 
his job is to give Obama's words to the press. Although he is speaking, he's using his own personality, no doubt. He's using his own words, so to speak. His words only have, have authority because he's sharing the president's message. That's the idea behind the Bible being theanthropic. God originated the message. The prophet isn't really important. He's simply the secretary recording the words. He may use his own style of writing, his own genre, his own type of speech, but the message is God's. Paul put it this way up on the screen here. 2 Timothy 3.16 through 17. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it's God breathed. God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the men of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's the logic behind Peter's statement. Prophecy doesn't come from the prophet. It comes from God, and thus it has authority. Prophecy tells us Jesus is coming again. Therefore, Jesus is coming again. Real simple logic. And so, as he writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, he says, Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Is your life shaped around this hope? In light of his coming, are you all in for him? Are you living for this world? Or are you living for the world to come? Let's finish this morning by looking at what the Word of God produces. Because this is where, really, this morning, we kind of receive our help to carry out Jesus' command to the disciples and to us to go all in. What the Word of God produces. Look again at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This verse is pregnant with meaning. It takes a bit of thought, but the application for us this morning is very powerful. I want to kind of give you a summation statement of what Peter's saying here. Here's what the Word of God produces. The Word of God brings illumination into a dark situation, producing revelation. I want to say that again. The Word of God brings illumination. It's a lamp shining into a dark situation, into a dark place. The lamp is shining into a dark place, as Peter describes, and it produces revelation. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the Word of God is here described as a lamp, and it's shining in a dark place. The idea behind the Greek here is that it's a very murky, polluted, vision-impaired place. That's exactly where these first-century Christians were. That's exactly where Peter was many times. That's where some of you are today. You're in a dark situation. You can't see clearly right now, perhaps. You don't see the light at the, the, the end of the tunnel. You know what the Word of God teaches you, but you can't see the, end, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Everything's fuzzy. Maybe it's distorted a little bit. I've, I've faced that a lot. I'm sure all of, you, all of us have. Why is everything so polluted? Everything is so polluted because we live in a polluted world. A polluted world is going to place us in polluted situations. But then the word of God comes in, the lamp, and it shines. And you begin to see clearly until finally, Peter says, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is describing a moment of revelation that comes from the lamp shining on our lives, in our, in our dark situations. You open the Word of God, you allow it to shine on your dark situation, and a moment of clarity comes. 
a moment of revelation within a dark situation. What a beautiful moment that is that we've experienced. When we get into the Word of God and you're just in this dark situation and you're praying and you're going through the Word and all of a sudden something just clicks and it's like, oh, and everything becomes very clear. Now, if I were to ask you who the morning star is or what the morning star is, many of you would say Jesus. And you'd say that because in Revelation 22:16, Jesus calls himself the morning star. However, I don't think that's what Peter's referring to. For one thing, it's not being used as a title here, and the Greek is actually very different. I think that Peter is simply speaking of a star, a morning star. Sometimes this word is used in Greek literature to speak of Venus. Venus rises very early in the morning. So Peter's saying, if you are in a dark place, allow the lamp of God, allow the word of God to shine and bring clarity to you. A day will dawn. Revelation will break forth as a star that rises early in the morning when you open up the word. Peter tells us how to handle the word here. He says, take heed to it. Take heed to it. That's literally what is meant here when he says, you will do well to pay attention. It means take heed to it. That word is actually a a word that's used to describe a ship that's coming to land. Because when you're coming to land, you have to keep your eyes fixed on a single location. If you don't keep your eye fixed on that single location, you begin to drift. Peter says, keep your eyes fixed upon the word of God so that you can see clearly, so that you know where you're going, so that you understand your destination. Peter knew about this. He was a a fisherman. No doubt he had to go through that many times. What do you do in dark times? When everything seems fuzzy, you can't see, see clearly. Maybe you're drifting a bit this morning. Maybe, in all honesty, you're drifting. You're drifting a bit. Drifting even from the faith, perhaps. Get into the Word of God. It will illuminate your path. It will cause a day to dawn. Revelation will break through the fog. The morning star will come. It will come if you wait for it. A new day will dawn when you open the Word. Now, perhaps you're reading, but the day just hasn't dawned yet. Wait for it. It will come. But on this note, I want to give a word of warning about the Word. Perhaps you're reading, perhaps you're waiting, but you aren't obeying. Now, please listen to this. We're almost done, but I do believe that God gave this portion of the message for someone or perhaps many people here this morning. James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he doesn't seek to obey after hearing, basically. He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Some of us, we have that revelation. It comes, and we get excited about that revelation, but then we don't do anything about it. It's like, oh, great. Okay, and I'm not going to do anything about it now. We have to obey what the Word of God tells us to obey. James is telling us that the Word of God causes us to observe ourselves, our natural face. He likens it to us looking in a mirror. Because when we see, our, we see ourselves as, in, as we see ourselves in truth when we're looking into a mirror. That's what the Word of God does. It shows us who we really are. It shows us our real situation. It reveals things to you because, again, it's a living Word. And as Hebrews 4.12 puts it again, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you see yourself in the mirror of the Word, but then you go away and do nothing about it, You're going to have to learn the same thing over and over and over again. That's what happened with Israel. God told them, 
I want you to go into the land. He said, I don't worry about the enemies in there. I want you to go into the land. They heard that word. They knew what God had commanded them to do, but what did they do? They disobeyed because of their lack of faith. And what did they end up doing? They wandered in the wilderness. Some of us here this morning are wandering. We're wandering in our faith as Christians. Things are very dark. We're not sure what's going on. And could it be because we're not obeying what God has told us to obey in his word? In closing, why did Peter go all in for Jesus? What made him leave his home, leave a prominent fishing business, spend the rest of his days preaching the gospel message to people who wanted to kill him? (laughs) Why is he here in 2 Peter seeking to remind these believers of things even in the face of his death by crucifixion? These are his last words. You know a lot about a man by what he says at the end of his life. Peter had witnessed the glorified Lord. He'd witnessed the risen Lord. That changed everything for him. He knew things would never be the same. He believed in the word of God, and he came to discover that it pointed to Jesus. He witnessed prophecy being fulfilled right before his very eyes. He saw things. He heard things. And he couldn't deny those things. It compelled him to follow, even to the point of death. Does God require any less of you and I? That's the question for us this morning. Does God require any less than than laying it all down? Maybe that's why God brings us into dark situations in our lives so often. Perhaps he's backing me at times into a corner, and he's asking, are you going to bet on me, Brian? Are you going to go all in, or are you also going to leave me? Are you going to go all in to the point where you're actually going to do something about it? where you're going to move, where you're going to act on it, not just talk about it, where you'll stretch out your hands and die in this situation, where you'll stretch out your hands towards people around you. Are you going to leave me, Brian? Peter is telling these believers in the first century, hey, I know things are difficult right now, but we witnessed his glory. And more important than that, we have the word of God, and it tells us that he's coming back again. So don't fall into the temptation that these false prophets are bringing. To you. you know, we have a lot of false prophets in our lives right now. There's a lot of people who will reject this word. There's a lot of people who will tell you that you're living your life following Jesus, and it's just a cleverly devised myth, and you're a fool. There's a lot of people that will tell you that. Peter's saying, hey, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. We witnessed his glory. Besides, where else do you have to go? (laughs) To whom else can you go? You have come to know that he alone has the words of eternal life. And that is something that you can never go back from. Never. Peter knew, I'm never going back. And I want to leave you with this. The best way to see clearly in any situation is by looking at the cross See him on the cross. Remember that he has proven his love for you. As it says in Romans 5, 8, he's demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's proven it to us. There's no other proof that we really need than just to look at the cross. Jesus died for us. Do some cross-examination. 
When you're, when you're in a difficult situation, do some cross-examination. Remember that sometimes the greatest good comes out of the worst of situations. The cross teaches that, us, that, us that, doesn't it? I mean, talk about a hopeless situation. The Messiah dying? But the greatest good came out of it. Take your problems to the cross and renew your decision this morning, or perhaps for the first time, to go all in for him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you, God, for this reminder that you've given over these last two months to me, Lord, that the cost is to give you all. You gave all for me. And I pray, Lord, now that as I've given this message that you gave to me, to our church, that we would be a church, Lord, truly that would be a light, that would truly be all in for you, that we would give our whole lives for you, that we would be, do it unashamedly, and that when things get dark, we would look to you and we would remember why we're doing what we're doing. We would remember why we're dying to self, why we're loving people so hard, why we are giving, Lord, why we are doing the things we're doing. We're, we're, we're doing this because of what you have done for us. As, as Jason put it a couple weeks back, it's grace-generated effort. Lord, help us to have effort, though. Help us to not be those who just sit back and do nothing about it. Help us to be rooted in your word, hearing it, but then also doing it as well. And help us to be doing it, but, make, but making sure that we're actually hearing it correctly. That's important as well. I pray for all of us here today, God, that we would truly renew our decision to go all in for you. In Jesus' name, amen.